This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase and it's 2016, the start of a brand new year of cool and obscure movie goodness. And to kick things off, we have a pair of movies by two of the most visually driven directors currently working at the moment. As we find a unique way of dealing with your breakup in Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. And we also look at the third and final entry in Park Chan-wook's Vengeance Trilogy with Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. But to help me kick things off, my guest tonight is the comic book, book artist and fellow cult film fiend, Sue Lee, whose work has been featured in titles like Fight Like a Girl and Liquid City, as well as more recently pulling dual duties both writer and artist on her own comic, Hysterics. Um, welcome to the show, Sue. Hello. Thanks for having me. You, for those not familiar with your work, you're a comic book artist by trade, is that right in saying? Or a, a just yeah, artist by I trade? Yeah, I think so. Uh, artist, but yeah, comic book artist is right. I mean, I don't know. You obviously went to find <laughs> your path. Is. Uh, I'm sorry. I, as I said, I I know everyone likes to define what they do differently. So. Uh, oh right, no, it's, comic book artist is perfectly fine. That's fine. Um, obviously, the titles that we mentioned already, like Fire Like a Go and Liquid City. I mean, it's. Am I right in saying it's sort of more the indie side that you sort of work, or do you? Yes, that across? was more indie stuff. Um, and I'm actually, I guess I'm actually just doing indie stuff at the moment. Uh, Hysterics is my own comic and I'm trying to push that out. So that's also indie. Then I have a, uh, another title I can't talk about yet. That's, you know, also my, actually my own story as well. Okay. So yeah, you get the freedom to do more stuff, I think. Yeah. Do you have a sort of preference over the sort of the writing or just doing artwork or... Do you like to sort of uh, have that control of being able to do both? You know, it's easier, I think, to just, you know, draw someone else's story. I mean, it's not easy, but, yeah. you know, you just kind of, like, go for it. You have a script, you know what to do, and you just do it. But then with that saying that, I did miss making my own stories and having control in what I wanted to do. You know, as long as the editor is okay with it, right? But... You know, I get to uh, kind of take control of my own universe. So I do miss that, and that's why I started it back again. Yeah. Um, but then the hard part is, it's all your fault if something goes wrong. <laughs> there is obviously that. I mean, within the indie sort of comic book scene, do you find, again, that you've sort of got more freedom than if you were writing for, like, a mainstream label like Marvel or DC? Um, I know, obviously, DC have their sort of imprint labels like Dark Horse and... Uh, Vertigo, which sort of allow them a bit more freedom, and same with Marvel, they have Max, which they did their Punisher line with, and again, it just pushed it to a little more extreme, so 
would you say you have more freedom with working on indie sort of titles or does it sort of vary from title to title the freedom you get uh, it varies you know when you're working with another writer and you're not co-owning the story you, you kind of have to go by what they want and but you know they'll they'll trust you to make decisions art-wise so there's like you know there there's some trust there but no I don't really get the freedom that I wish I did you know yeah. so it's nicer to do it on my own but I definitely still like working with other people as well that's cool that's cool I mean obviously with hysterics again you've you've got what would from the outset seem to be a sort of very traditional setup you've got the three sort of feisty ladies but they're actually <laughs> criminals within the crime world they're criminals yes. who enjoy what they do they don't this is just a way of life for them right um, I mean where did you sort of find the inspiration for hysterics huh well it, it you know it's like an amalgam of like a bunch of stuff yeah. that I've been thinking about in my head well you know I there's always comics about good people and you know heroes but you know I think villains are infinitely more interesting than superheroes or you know just heroes in general and so I want to know about the villains who are really good at what they do right because yeah. you never really get to see that well now you do but you know it wasn't as typical back then yeah it's there's, there's a few obviously a few books out there which obviously focus on the villain sure. um but but yeah as you said it's it's more we want sort of the traditional hero sort of type we don't get the, the sort of books i would say it's more am i right in saying it's sort of more of a sort of uh a familiar sort of trait that you would get with things like manga with uh like the original old boy uh, yeah, right. You know, and then you see, you know, it, you can kind of relate to villains or like the bad guys in a way because what's the difference of a bad person and a good person is a good person can actually take those bad thoughts and do something positive with it, right? But bad yeah. people are just like, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to do the bad things, right? <laughs> and I mean, like, we kind of wish we could do that, you know, sometimes, right? You're like, oh, if I could get away with it, I would do it. But these people are just shameless, so they just do it. That's cool. I mean, certainly when you're obviously describing the the plot for hysterics, uh, when you're over on um, Adrian has issues, yes. um, which is a great podcast, and if anyone's not checked out already, I would certainly recommend checking it out. That's great. Yeah, he's um, wonderful. And the film which kept coming to mind as you're describing it, I kept thinking of uh, the series My Wife is a Gangster. Oh, oh yeah. And it's sort of like just this idea of someone who again who isn't ashamed of what they're doing and as you said they're just embracing this criminal lifestyle and i think do you if you're writing from a criminal perspective do you feel that you have to sort of like work in sort of moral compass into the character or can you just go for evil with the character and and hope that people are going to latch on to this sort of character so you know i so you know uh, naturally uh, we talk to friends, you know, to kind of get the right guidance, you know, and to see if your idea works. And a lot of the times they tell you, you can't just have a bad person for the sake of being bad. But I kind of, I kind of disagree with that in a sense, because not everyone is just good, yeah. you know? Like, I feel like some people are just born bad, so why not just make a bad character? But you have to kind of give them some kind of humility to bring them back to reality, you know? Because so, so you can understand why they're doing something. So, you know, like why they choose to, 
I don't know, rob a bank, let's say, right? Like, oh, they had a poor family, grew up poor, blah, blah, blah. So you kind of root for them. So you have to give something the readers can root for. You can't just say, oh, this person's a bad person because they just grew up as a psychopath. Yeah. I mean, which can also happen, but it's just not as interesting. But there's a way to do it, I think, that I'm going to try to figure out, <laughs> you know, of incorporating both sides. Okay. And the reality of which hysterics is set in the sort of world it's in is this more sort of a, a comic book a comic book and sort of fina- fantastical sort of realm or has it got a sense of reality to it oh no it's definitely a very slice of life maybe that's <laughs> not the right word but it's it's very you know set in reality so no one has superheroes it's you know real i, I try to use um i live in new york yeah so i try to use new york as reference for one of the cover for the cover actually that I used is you know referenced from one of the uh, stations here okay so I, I wanted to give it a very you know realistic sense it's one of those great seats that you can draw inspiration from I know I was spent a limited amount of time there when I was working there as a camp counselor and oh yeah just the the time I spent in New York City I was over in Central Park West but just the limited area I explored and stuff there's a lot of inspiration I can see being able to draw from the city i mean just the different boroughs alone and you can see why marvel base all their sort of comic books within that that within the their version of new york so sure and a uh, lot of the creators back then lived here so that would only make sense right yeah. i mean this place is a really beautifully disgusting city you know <laughs> <laughs> just like a disgusting charm to it i don't know i love this place it's uh it's certainly gonna appeal i find that new yorkers if you're sort of living in New York, you get used to the sort of pace and the attitude of New Yorkers. But if oh, you're sort absolutely. Of like, as a tourist, everyone comes off really aggressive yeah. um, yes. and abrupt. But when you sort of like spend any amount of time there, you can kind of understand why everyone's so aggressive and blunt. blunt. They're just <laughs> right, not right. places to go. Or they right, live in we're just constantly busy, right? <laughs> this is the thing, it's like, I never felt as busy as when I was in New York. It's sort of like, there just seemed to be constantly somewhere to be or something to do. Well, you know, here you got to be a hustler to survive in New York. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you into uh, comic books? I know that you said before that originally you were going to go off and be a mortician. Yeah, yeah no, decided... that was just like, I was just throwing a tantrum. Like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going <laughs> to do this. Why not? You know? No, I did. I, you know, I still think about it. What if I did something crazy like that? But, you know, no, I just always wanted to create something. Yeah. So... Instead of working with uh, dead people, you decide to put pen to paper. I mean, would, did you right. always have an interest in art, or was this something that you sort of developed uh, when you decided to go into being a comic book artist? No, I, um, you know, I loved art. You know, like that stereotypical. Oh, the kids love drawing. My kid was so talented. You know that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I always, you know, like I've always had an an interest in art, and I've always, and I always knew I wanted to do something with it. Okay, and was that what was your sort of inspirations like coming up through the field? I mean, who were the sort of artists or titles that you were sort of like using as your inspiration? I mean, it was a lot. Uh, when I was younger, it was a lot of you know manga, anime stuff, right? Of course. Um, then as I yeah. got older, or like you know introduced to mainstream comics, I was I was also fairly young, but it was a lot of like, uh, of course, a lot of DC stuff. But I also like, you know, things like Hellboy. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a lot. You know, like when it, it's you kind of forget 
because it's it's already it's already you know been ingrained in your mind. So like whenever I work on something, I think of randomly of the people that I'm inspired by. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Hellboy. I love the stories of Hellboy, but. The artwork I could never get on with. This oh, of, really? The silhouette oh, style, of which is, is yeah, cool. no, it is very different, isn't it? Um, and I think I'm just I'm just like a real art snob when it comes to to comic books. It's sort of like I would often be like drawn in by these amazing like cover artists, and you like you start reading it, and it'd be like that old sort of 80s uh, dot coloring that they used to have, in like especially in the DC oh, right, yeah. books, and you have like Superman with blue hair, and it's like what was this 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 is what I, I can get in with. So I think I was always like a fan of the stories rather than the actual artwork. But, yeah, I can see that. Sure. There's same, a lot of a lot of people who read comics are like that. Yeah. That's that's reassuring at least. Yeah, no. <laughs> um and I think I think this is why I sort of gravita- gravitated more towards the indie sort of comics. Uh sure. things like Spawn and especially Todd McFarlane. Um is probably one of my big sort of comic book heroes like growing up and Obviously, I mean, did you have those sort of heroes, or were you just sort of going by title by title? No, I definitely did. Like, I really looked up to Mobius, um, Joe Kubert. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the uh, Western names that I was really heavily, you know, trying to look up to. Um, well, see, now I don't even remember anyone's names anymore. It's almost weird, isn't it? As soon as someone like, <laughs> asks you to name an inspiration, it's like, uh... It just escapes you. That's fine, that's fine. With the current artists that are out there at the moment, I mean, is there any ones who you're sort of, like, really sort of into at the moment, or is it oh, just man. the same sort there's, of same there's, one? Yeah, it, no, there's so many people who are just super amazing, like, insanely amazing you know i just look at it i just pick up a comic book and flip through it and i'm like oh my god what am i doing you know (laughs) i mean do you also think that this change in attitude towards geek culture um has helped the sort of comic book industry because it's sort of gone from this stage where it was this sort of thing you didn't admit that you were like a comic book fan or if you were you were sort of like so the seen as the geeky kids like the the losers so to speak and now it's so the hip thing to be into comic books is taking on a very uh taking on a very sort of similar style to with manga where if you go to like japan and you see people reading manga on the subway and that and there's no shame in reading manga but and it seems to now be the case where you can go on the train and you see people reading like trade paperbacks of like spider-man or yeah that, i think that's that, really so. great yeah um you know it, growing up i've always went to art school so i went to art high school and then i went to an art college so i was surrounded by the losers you know (laughs) (laughs) uh so when i was you know when i was younger like way before you know high school yeah i was that one person who knew how to draw so everybody would come up to you and ask you oh can you draw me this and can you draw me that kind of stuff but then you know you realize i mean this may sound kind of weird but you you don't you're not actually that special because there's a lot more artists or creators than you thought there were. Yeah. You know, so instead you just kind of like help each other if you can, right? And try to try to work together. Well, you know, there's competition, but like you make friends and then you kind of like learn from each other from it, you know? So that that's actually really encouraging to me. And I think it does help that it's become more of a normal now to be into comic books or, you know, 
just whatever anything like geek culture. Yeah. Because more people are reading comics now. It may not even be through you know paper, uh, paper issues, right? It, it's also digital. There's infinitely much more digital releases than there are. There has been years ago, like even like four years ago, you know. Yeah. So it's I've, definitely booming. Oh, it's, it's certainly booming. I mean, you only look at Comic Con and you see what a trade convention that's essentially become now. Yeah. Um, well, I, with the help of you know TV and movies. Certainly. I mean, do you? ever sort of like worry that we're reaching a sort of saturation point especially with marvel i mean they've got i think they've got about 37 phases planned out of with their big scheme of things and you've obviously got dc now playing catch up with uh the likes of batman versus superman and suicide squad coming up this year i mean do you sort of ever worry that we're going to reach this sort of sit- saturation point where people are just sort of like sick of comic book movies and it's gonna in a way if have this knock-on effect on the industry or do you think there's always going to be a place for comic book fans? I think there's always going to be a place for comic fans. I mean, that's just talking mainstream stuff, right? Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, you know, this movie comes out, so this comic book has to come out as well, right? You know, to kind of just run with it. But, like, for instance, indie comics, I think it's starting to change because image is becoming huge. Yeah. So when we say indie, we're not just talking about like, you know, like, um, uh, SPX or whatever anymore. We're talking about like image has become the big indie comics. So that's still considered indie in a way, but people are flocking to that a lot, which is great because it's all creator owned stuff. It's stuff that you have, you wouldn't read that you wouldn't even bother picking up before. But, and, you know, those can easily turn into movies or TV shows all the time. Um, so I think there's something there and there's always something going to be there. And I don't think it's going to be that saturated because, you know, it's sometimes like people want to see movie versions of a comic book or like they want to see a comic version of a movie. Yeah. You know, like every time you see something, usually through casual conversation with someone, they'll just offhandedly say, oh, yeah, you know, that should totally be a movie. You know what I mean? So and I think there's something there. Yeah, I can understand what you mean. I mean, I think I was more surprised than anyone when Mark Miller suddenly became this major player within the comic book movie scene. Um, I think he's currently responsible for supervising the output of Marvel films, but he was the guy who was sort of like, he no one was doing obviously like the ultimate series, but he was his own line of books, like his ultra violent uh, books, things like Wanted mm-hmm. or um, Kick Ass. Sure. When those sort of like took off, I was like really surprised when they was, were embraced the way they were. I mean, Kick Ass, especially, is incredibly crude in places, and right. you, know, you have to look at what they cut out of the second one to realize. Right. If you've seen the car- comics, they, they've really like, you know, downplayed it a lot. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's, I think that's the uh, fun part of it, too. Yeah. So, I mean, if we were to obviously find someone who wanted to, like, buy hysterics and turn it into, I don't know, a TV project or a film sort of project, mm-hmm. do you ever have this worry that they're going to, like, sort of screw it, screw it up? Or do you, would you um, like, see it, like, develop? I mean, I've, I've known people who's had their works, not even just comics, like, maybe even just literary stuff you know, get turned into a movie and then they say that it's it's never always, it's almost never like the way you made it. Yeah. But I would be happy with that. I don't care, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I would love for that to happen. You know, I, it, if I could just see my characters on screen, go for it. 
you know? So you, you're quite happy to have like the comic book be its own thing and then the TV series be its own interpretation. So sure, why not? You know, it's I'm not like um you know, I'm not like super strict on stuff like that. I don't care. So you're not like it's Alan fun. Moore. Oh. <laughs> he could he's, Well, he's I, a genius, so he can <laughs> he can get he can get if he wants to about it. The thing with Alan Moore is that sometimes you see him and he's like really funny and really laid back and other times he's kind of out there. Um, and I'm never too sure which version I'm supposed to like believe when it comes to Alan Moore. I mean, I remember this interview where he was going about this religion he created where he's worshipping the multi-breasted snake goddess, which may in fact turn out to be just a, a sock puppet. And I was like, <laughs> you're clearly dealing with someone who's on a different plane to everyone else, but yeah, he's he's definitely beyond us. Yeah, but he didn't like Watchmen, and I was like looking at Watchmen, and it's like this is a page-to-screen adaptation, and with like very minor changes to things like Silk Spectre, and in my opinion, an improved ending because I could never get on with the giant squid. But again, he was he just uh, wasn't happy and said basically give the money to the artists, and uh, I'm want no no thing to do with this. So, I mean, you know, well. For certain creators, it's definitely, like, my baby kind of thing. Or not even that. It's just, like, you know, the integrity of what they've created. And they don't want to see it ruined, which is completely understandable. And sure, if, you know, Hysterics was turned into something that was kind of questionable, then I would also be upset as well. But, you know, I would love for that chance. I would love to see how that feels, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with it. Yeah, you'd love to uh, to play the sellout to see how that. Sure. Works yeah. Out. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, who wouldn't want to, really? What you, you know, want to but... drive this truck of money <laughs> up to my house? <laughs> yeah. That, oh man, totally. <laughs> but you know, I don't know. I would love to, you know, see where it goes. You know, if that were to happen, yeah, I would like to say, oh, can I put my two cents in or whatever? But you know, yeah. If it happens, it happens. I mean, there are two properties I would love to see done and i would like to see them done well uh one being uh, dmv or dmz sorry not a dmv was to see a film about the bloody <laughs> car <laughs> license office but i know you can make it pretty edgy if you got the right writer i've seen what they've been doing with zootopia where it's like the dm uh dmv get it right now um <laughs> and it's just like man by sloths oh man that's hilarious but um yeah a dmz <laughs> uh, the the multi uh, comic book series. I keep hearing rumors that they're gonna, they're going to do a series of it, and I would love to see that happen. Um, and the other one, obviously, being Hack Slash. Okay, sure. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one at all. I do. I haven't read the comics, but I do know of it. Okay, I think you'd really like the comics. Basically, just because it's so. It's like much a grindhouse of... comic, right? Yeah, it's like so much of a homage to like eighty slashes in particular. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, and it sort of exists in this world where like Jason and Freddy like exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Cassie Hack, whose mother was like a killer lunch lady, and she's <laughs> got this like man mutant, this um, called Vlad, who she basically just teams up and they go around the around uh, the country just like killing slashes. <laughs> Uh, oh, I see. But it, it's again, it's it's extremely violent and extremely funny. But it was one of those series which I felt was sort of cut in its prime, and I would like to see a an adaptation. But again, an adaptation done well, sure. which again is always going to be the thing. But 
Um, certainly, if you, if you like that, I would also recommend checking out uh, Behind the Mask, uh, The Rise of Leslie Venom, which is a great mm. film. It's, uh, it's a mockumentary. Okay. But again, it's in that same sort of world where, like, Freddy and Michael, they all exist. And it's about an aspiring serial killer, and he basically is taking his film crew through how he sets up his kills and how he goes about his job. And so it's kind of like a lighter version of Man Bites Dog. Oh, okay. Um, but again, something worth checking out. I mean, obviously with your no, film taste, uh, they're <laughs> very out there. It, it, it is. I was, <laughs> I was like, okay, because so, when people first started saying, oh, I like like cult cinema, it's sort of like, okay, we're just going to get some predictable titles. But then, as I said, you're naming like Takashi Miike, for example, when you talk about Ishii the Killer. Um, and I think you mentioned that it's because your mum that you were allowed to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> which is just absolutely insane. Um, I mean, are you, it uh, is, isn't it? In retrospect. <laughs> I mean, are you a Miike fan on a whole, or do you sort of like like to step in and out of his work? You know, I'm not sure actually. I'm not really sure. I forgot. I don't know if what the last one of his I saw, but that was definitely the most memorable one to me because you know it's it's so culturally a hit you know so then i you end up rewatching it again and again (laughs) i can't say it's the one i want to (laughs) rewatch. i actually did read the comic recently i think it was like a few years ago okay from like start to finish oh you want to talk about like very different adaptations that's it it is extremely different and i actually love the comic Way more than the movie. Because mm. it's hyper-violent, but it's also really... Um, no, it's just completely different. It's just 100% different. I'll just say that. It's, it's you should weird. read it. It's weird because I can watch Splatter on film, but when it comes to uh, comic books and stuff, I have this like real aversion to seeing Splatter in uh, in comic books. Uh, so things like the Battle Royale uh, original manga series. Oh, right. Where you see like people showing the head and there's like teeth flying off and... Yeah, it's like, very... what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, it's extremely vivid. Um, I mean, I read read the book version of Battle Royale. And again, that crams in a lot of things, which the film didn't. I mean, we've got a whole... That's true. With the, like, the character Chigasaw. She mm-hmm. has like a, a full on sort of like martial arts fight in, in that, which again was sort of like trimmed down to just her basically going crazy with a switchblade, which again was pretty cool. Right. But no, um, I think Mike is like one of those directors who, for one reason or another, he led the the invasion of, and sort of renaissance in sort of Asian cinema over here. We had like these key films. We had uh, Mike's Audition, uh, Battle Royale, and Ring. These three films that came over and just like revitalized interest in Asian cinema. So right, I, I mean Battle Royale is extremely popular as well, and I've seen that plenty yeah. of times. But it's I mean, again, it's totally different than Ichi the Killer, you know? Again, Ichi the Killer, I think only someone like Mikei could could obviously do a film like that. And I think because he's got this sort of status like Tarantino where people go into his movies and kind of know what to expect, yeah. that he has yeah. this sort of freedom to go and make something as absolutely insane as, uh, as Ichi or like Audition or like sure. his Dead or Alive trilogy. Um, which the first one, especially, which featured five minutes of just like 
splatter and people snorting like mile long lines of cocaine. Sure. But you can understand why he's so popular. Um, especially with it's like insane, so. you know? Like, you can't get that in real life, or no. you don't want that in real life. So instead, people have, you know, movies to kind of just escape. To live that terrible life for, yeah. like, um, like, two hours, you know? And obviously for these films coming across, and it kind of opened the door in a way for... Korean cinema, which for myself is where my interest mainly lies at the moment, uh, especially with directors like Park Chan-wook, who we're going to obviously discuss this evening, um, and his Vengeance trilogy. I mean, do you have like a particular country that you prefer cinema from, or do you like to keep it a pretty open sort of platter? It's an open platter for sure, but I do love Korean cinema a lot. It, it, you know, it's very close to Japanese cinema. Mm. But it's, I don't want to say it's similar, you know, but there's a diff- There's definitely a different feel to Korean movies than there are to most other ones that I've seen. It's like the pacing is different. And yeah. it's, and a lot of the times, or at least the movies that I've seen, a lot of the times it's, the dialogue is really, um, how do I say, uh, compatible with real people because they curse a lot and they use a lot of like, terminology that you know just regular people down the street would use yeah and so it may kind of come off really abrasive but i understand it you know it's just like just just regular people yeah and i the other thing i appreciate as well is the fact that i think foreign film fans that sort of become more open to the genres they're willing to explore um whereas before you would have just films from a particular genre, such as like, like Japanese Yakuza movies, you'd like Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, or you had to have like mm-hmm. art house sort of fare, and these would be the only ones that come across. Now we're getting a lot of things like, we're getting like Korean comedies coming across, and we're getting sites which are set up just to show like Korean TV shows. Um, yes. But I've rarely sort of stepped into it because, especially with uh, when you look at like Japanese series, they run a series for a year rather than like a, like a, a season. And then they decide on the back of that whether they're going to renew it or not. So it's always this daunting task to like take on any sort of like series, especially with like manga. And you're sure. like looking at 100 plus parts and it's all like, well, I've got to then sacrifice all these other things. I mean, there's so many things on Netflix I still haven't watched. I mean, I still haven't even started watching Narcos yet, which everyone keeps raving about. So. Oh, Narcos, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's old news now, though. you got to catch up. Is it, is it old news? <laughs> I think so. Let me put it this way. I've only just finished watching Orange is the New Black. Oh, wow. Because yeah. um, I, I guess it's just, there's so much stuff out there. And it's sort of like, you have to decide after like two or three episodes whether you're going to stick with the show. It's not like the olden days where you would have these limited amount of shows coming out and you could pretty much watch everything. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've, we've obviously Netflix and Amazon doing their sort of series. Yeah, we're definitely spoiled now. So, I mean, is there anything else that's sort of holding your interest? Any sort of, what sort of films and series have been holding your interest as late then? Um, well, actually, for New Year's Eve, I saw uh, Hateful Eight. Okay. And I really liked it. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's okay, we can be friends now. now yeah, okay, did you see so. it? I'm always... Because whenever Tarantino's name is mentioned, there's people who, like, like myself who just absolutely adore him. And then there's those who's like, Oh, he just basically plagiarizes other movies, so... Well, he's... I mean, 
it can come off that way, but it's I think it's an it's just like homage clips, you know, yeah. to all the movies that he's like he adores himself. And to be honest, it's not like those people have seen those movies anyways. <laughs> Come, like, let's be serious, right? So you can't even be upset because you have no idea what those clips are from. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, unless you actually are hardcore, you know, old school Asian movie fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would have no idea. I think, again, this is the appeal of Tarantino. I mean, the fact is, he's a self-confessed film junkie. So yeah. he's one of us. And he's sort of scrapbooking it, his films, and it's the way he constructs his films, which is why they're so interesting. I love, especially when I was like watching Kill Bill and it's sort of like, oh, this is like a nod to Lady Snowblood. Oh, this right. is like Sex and Zen. And he was sort of like going, this is well, where exactly. this is from. And, you know, that guy's from, from this. And uh, you It's know, just like his little love letters to them, you know? Exactly. And just immortalizing it on TV. I just wish he would get out this Western genre kick. Oh, I love Westerns. I gotta oh, say, gosh. I do love it. So, I don't know, even for uh, my college, like, um, thesis project, yeah. I did a Western as well. <laughs> so, it's like, I don't know, because it's beautiful. It, you know what I mean? It's just like something about a Western is so, it's so easily gritty. You know what I mean? I, and it's like so somber at times. Yeah. I don't know. It's I get it. It's... <laughs> I just, for some reason, the Western genre is just something I could never really? get on with. And I think it's because he's constantly teased these other movies. Like, he teased another World War II movie called Wild Crows, which mm-hmm. would be his, like, black G.I. Joes led by Samuel Jackson, so, like, a men on the mission mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. And that would have been a great companion piece to Inglourious Bastards, which, again, I really enjoyed. It's a bit out there when, you know, you've got them killing Hitler, and you realize it's just essentially like a a Jewish revenge fantasy that you're watching, but sure. I, I think apart from Eli Roth, again, um, sort of screwing up the bear Jew, Inglourious Bastard is probably one of my favorites, um, alongside Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, and the, obviously with like Vestuar Dogs and Pulp Fiction, they've been shown in homage that many times, it's hard to name them as, as being a favorite now. I mean, right. do, do you have a favorite Tarantino movie? or? I guess... Well, I've I've watched Kill Bill like millions of times, mm. so I can so while I'm working, I can just watch it, you know, and then yeah. just know whatever what what anything is happening just by the noise. <laughs> uh, I don't know actually. I, huh? Because <laughs> I love his movies okay. a lot, almost all of them, you know. Yeah. So I can't really say I love one the most, because they all entertain me, and they all you know. Um, yeah, like, I I just enjoy all of them. So to kind of say I love one thing of his wouldn't feel right. <laughs> I okay. don't know if that makes any sense. That's fine. I mean, you can you can enjoy them all equally. I mean, I'm, I'm still the biggest defender of Death Proof. I feel that it was very unrelated. Yeah. Um, yes, it is essentially just an excuse to cram in a big car chase. But, you know, when it works, it, it just really works. Um, I need to rewatch that. I mean, I've got, only seen it that once. Obviously, stateside, you were lucky. You got you got the proper grindhouse experience. You know, Planet Terror and Death Proof like combined together. That's true. <laughs> Here in the UK, they they split them up. We got a oh, few wow. separate movies. So, huh. despite we had all this promotion um, of it like coming out, you know, it's like Tarantino and Rodriguez together at last, two movies for what price of one, and 
it sort of didn't work in work well in the states. It didn't generate the money they thought it was. They split it into two films. And as I've said before on the show, I actually when I found out this had happened, I had to get on a plane from Birmingham. I left work, got on a plane to Birmingham, went to LA, LA, went straight to the cinema to watch Grindhouse, and pretty much got on a plane and went back to work. Oh my gosh! Um, this is sort of turned into a fanboy sort of insanity. Yeah, no, but... that's fine. My best friend. <laughs> I, I actually asked my best friend if he wanted to watch Hateful Eight with me, but then he's like, he has a ritual because he has a family, you know, like kids and stuff, yeah. and he needs to get out of his head. So he's like, I have a ritual where I have to see it by myself. I just leave my house one day and I just go watch a Tarantino film and that's it. That's right. I mean, so, you know, we all have weird Tarantino rituals, it seems. The thing with. This again, this is the issue I have. Cinemas now are too nice to go and see a film by yourself. Like, I don't mind going and seeing a film by myself. It's like some rundowns, sort of like grindhouse sort of place. But when you go to like a view or like one of these big multiplexes and you've got like the plush seats and stuff, I just feel self conscious sitting there by myself. It's so like, oh, really? Unless it's like a some obscure showing. But I remember going to see like Spider Man 3 and thinking I like timed it perfectly to be there. Pretty much be myself and like drunks or homeless people or something. Sure. And it was just like wall to wall families and it's all like just oh. self conscious there. Well now I can see why. Yeah. You're that weirdo just sitting in the movies by yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's fine. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I saw Hateful Eight recently yeah. and I, I just loved it. I don't know, I really loved it. That's it was just so yeah, I don't know. Everything about it just it just really got to me. I was like, no, this is really really good it's very different you know it's like how people would perceive death proof i think okay but it's i don't know i think he did a really phenomenal job on that one and was it i mean was this the 70 millimeter print or was it the digital print so you went to the proper fanboy sort of version yeah um which again they they produced those lovely booklets and like had the interval and I think if you've got a good projectionist for the 70mm screen, that's that's the version to see. Right. Um, but if you see the digital print, I mean, they trim like half an hour off it because uh, they cut out like the intermission and all the yeah. sort of bump um, around it. So, but no, it, I'm so glad that uh, everyone's receiving uh, it, it so well. I'd hate for him to screw up his filmography by having this film which everyone hated, but because um, he constantly keeps threatening to retire, which I think is just would just be the biggest shame, really. I don't think he is. Because he's, I mean, he refuses to work on digital, so we've got to find a way to keep producing cine film for him. Yeah, right. Or you know, we'll, we'll watch it. You make yeah. it, someone will watch it. Um, I mean, at least until he does Kill Bill Three. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like you can do Kill and Bill Three and then and you retire. can retire. No. <laughs> you know, I'll leave you be. You can retreat to your like iguana covered island from then yeah right no but i would love to keep seeing tarantino movies for a really long time you know that'd be that would be great um and just one last thing i mean uh, other than tarantino is there any other sort of directors that you sort of sort of vibe off and that you have to like see the the whole of the back catalog or do you just take films on a film by film basis okay so i also really love pt anderson okay but then he's kind of a hit or a miss for me like i love there will be blood i loved the master but then i didn't like inherent vice 
Okay. <laughs> I you liked know? her advice. I don't yeah. know what is. Um, I mean, this is, again, I love I saw it tales, once, but... you know, so I'm going to have to see it again, probably. Yeah. Uh, in her advice, you're not alone. A lot of people really didn't like it. And I think this is going to become my new Southland Tales because I really enjoyed <laughs> it. And I don't know whether it's because the the space I was in or, or what it was, but I just there was something about that movie that just really sat with me. And, yeah. But um. It's very stylized. Yes. Not even like the way they shot the camera, because I heard an like an entire interview about it, but it was it's just incredibly more stylized than mm. usual, I think. Okay. But when I first saw There Will Be Blood. And I was like, this is, this is literally my top five, you know, top five movies in the universe. I love this movie. And so I think that's also where I got the, um, the bad guy thing from, you know, like wanting to make stories about bad people. He's certainly that. Um, And if anything, that film also gave uh, my friend's pub uh, quiz team their uh, team name called Bastards (laughs) in a Basket. (laughs) Yeah, he's. I think again, this is. Do you think it was uh, down to Daniel Day Lewis and his performance there that? I mean, yes. Well, I want to say yes, but I mean, even outside of you know Daniel, the story is really good. You know what I mean? It's a very real story, and it's so complex. It's just like the perfect character. You know, and it's like it's a very real mindset. People now think like that. You know what I mean? So it's yes. incredibly relatable. And it's just like it's it's so beautiful, you know? The un- the film which I didn't get on with, which everyone raised about, is Boogie Nights. And I I don't understand the appeal of this film and I'm hoping someone can right. explain it. Um I think mainly because I thought it was gonna be a comedy, but it's not. No, it's very dark, yes. <laughs> I was just sitting there going, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And nope. <laughs> no, it it got dark very quick, especially yeah. when it went on to the 80s segments. I was like, oh, boy. Yeah. Well, but, that's um, also very different, too, than usually. Than usual, I mean. No, but I, I would say, yeah, when he comes out with the movie, I do watch it. <laughs> that's cool, that's cool. Um. On to the first few selections this evening. Uh, we're going to start with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, directed by Michelle Gondry. Um, here we have the tale of Joel, whose ex-girlfriend Clementine, here played by Kate Winslet, um, has had memories of him erased by Lacuna Incorporated. Um, in response, he undergoes the treatment himself to remove the memories of their relationship, only to fo- soon find himself wanting to hold on to his memories of her, and while attempting to hide in the subliminal of his own mind, meaning that we have this very unique chase, to say the least, beginning to unfold. This is uh, another script by Kaufman, um, who previously gave us the likes of Human Nature, being John Malkovich, um, as well as Synodote New York, um, and Again, this is a writer who struggles to adapt the Orchid Hunter, again, turned it into his, again, another unique screenplay with adaptation, which, again, saw Nicolas Cage playing his own twin. Um, this is, again, Gondry really being given free reign to do whatever he wants, and he really takes the ball and run with it and essentially creates the high watermark for his career, which he says yet to reach again. But 
Um, so what's your sort of opening thoughts on Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind? Well, okay, so I watched this, what, when like years ago. Yeah. I think I was in like high school. I was a teenager or something like that. And, you know, when I first saw it, I thought it was amazing. I love this movie, you know, because it's very relatable, right, to your human emotions and relationships and complexities and, and all that good stuff. Uh, but when I first saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect, you know, because you're a teenager and you're also angsty and you're also, like, frenetic. And then I watched it recently to kind of get a refresher. And I'm like, this movie is really disturbing. These characters are really disturbing. Maybe because I've grown up now. Okay. But I see it as... These people definitely have issues. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's not cute anymore. Like I thought it was. Oh, wow. This is, I mean. Yeah, I didn't expect to have that reaction, but I was like, wow, this is actually, if I met Clementine in real life, I probably <laughs> wouldn't like her. You know? Is this, is this I mean, is this the, the New Yorker in you talking, though, where you obviously live no. with your free spirits <laughs> like Clementine, you're like, I don't want to see more of you. Maybe Fuck I'm you. just like, just overworked and tired now, but <laughs> it's just like. I don't know. It's something about her is just like she needs help. You know what I mean? I was just thinking that gosh, this this woman needs help. This is like not healthy. She's not healthy. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm I'm like the complete opposite with this movie. I mean, I still remember when I originally saw this. This is like one of those unique viewing experiences that I think I've only had with like. Donnie Darko, Southland Tales, and Clockwork Orange, where oh, yeah, I mean, you I can love remember like the feeling, right? When yeah, you the first feeling of watching it. this movie and like the surroundings of the 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 feeling. And I remember watching it, and the you've got Joel and he's given his like openings or like internal monologue here, and there was like two lines which really hit me, and it's like random thoughts of Valentine's Day 2004. Today's a holiday invented by greeting card companies to make people feel like crap. And why do I fall in love with every woman I see who shows me the least bit of attention? And it was like, that hit something. It's like, wow, this is a sort of like, hit something like something. I've got this connection already with this film and this character. And it's like, I don't care what happens next. I'm just going to love this movie because it's like. It's the dialogue is everything we think about. Yeah. But we don't want to admit because it's embarrassing. You know, that's why this movie is uncomfortable to watch but at the same time really like something about it's very releasing you know i mean cathartic i mean yeah i mean obviously here we have jim carrey playing a straight role for the most part essentially um something which has had sort of hit misses for him throughout his career with obviously films like man on the moon uh the truman show really working for him and then you obviously have things like the cable guy where sure Again, people went into that scene like Ethan Chun, and they're like, oh, it's Jim Carrey, he's the mask, you know, he's going to be funny. And then they watch it and it's like, no, he's just basically like Max Caddy from Cape Fear, but just like <laughs> really unhinged. Yeah. I yeah. just remember watching The Cable Guy and just like feeling so uncomfortable watching it. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in years. I know nothing about it anymore. <laughs> I would say it's, it's only got worse. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I've watched it as an older view and it's like, it's not getting any better. In time, yeah. <laughs> um, but here he's as the character Joe, he's like perfectly captures this 
this character who's like person, yeah, yeah, he's repressed. He's like constantly beats himself up. I mean, he sort of wakes up and he's like spontaneously feels the desire to go to Montauk. Yeah. Um, and this idea that we're following this character, he's just walking on the beach. I mean, he's criticizing everything he sees. I mean, he's criticizing sand for just being tiny rocks. Yeah. And then he meets this free-spirited woman, um, Clementine. And again, she's like the polar opposite of it. She's there talking about wanting the job naming hair colors, like coming up with names like Agent Orange, which I don't know if that would work as a hair color if people want to buy like the, a hair color named after a chemical warfare. But Yeah. Well, that's why she's insane. Right? <laughs> she's supposed to be kind of this insane character who has who's the completely opposite unhealthy spectrum as Joel is because he's also very depressed you know unhealthily so and she's the opposite you know but she's also depressed but just like pulls it off in a different way you know shows it in a different way but see when I was in high school when I was a teenager I also had the frenetically dyed hair I would dye my hair like every other month and stuff so when I watched this I was like this is completely relatable and then as I got older and I was just like oh man this is no good. I mean, I love the movie. It's just like these people. It's, I mean, rewatching the opening seduction scene, um, which, okay, spoiler alert, we're going to be spoiling both movies ahead. We're just going to warn I mean, you it's, now. It's an old movie. You should, everyone should have already seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the twist in Empire Strikes Back. You should really know by yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, what, what we think is just like an opening seduction is actually these two characters re-seducing each other. But it's so uncomfortable to watch. It is, isn't see it? he's like watching it. And he doesn't want to be there. He's there with this like crazy chick who's sort of basically freewheeling. She's just like anything that's coming into her mind, she's like like spurting out and and for some reason he like warms up to her and they have this moment where he like phones when he gets back to his apartment and you see this connection. And as the relation over the course of the relationship, you find that well, obviously while they're polar opposites, the fact that when they're together, they find this middle ground um, where she's like brings him out of a shell, encourages him to be more artistic. He sort of grounds her more, right? Um, and and he sort of channels her her randomness. Yeah. But I know you're obviously saying that Clementine's sort of like this crazy chick and just this irritants. Um, but in many ways, like when you watch it, she is sort of like that free spirit that you kind of would like to meet. I don't know necessarily about date, but whenever <laughs> you try to meet these sort of women in real life, they're just like, they, they're not like uh, Zoe de Chanel in New Girl and that sort of fun free spirit. They're just, just pain crazy. Uh, well, that's why, you know, I guess as a woman, I, I see stuff like this and I'm just like, well, you know what I mean? Like, it, this is not really real. Yeah. You know, so I guess it kind of, as I'm older, you know, I just, I kind of realize that. So it just becomes less cute for me, you know? Is it, I mean, is it just the fact, the realization is obviously you get older that, you know, you've, you can't just like be free spirits and paint butterflies in the wall. You know, you've got to pay bills, you've got to work and stuff. Well, no, I mean, it's, you know, I guess so, but I, I understand the free spirit aspect. I just, and I, I like, as I got older, she's just completely unrelatable to me now. You know, whereas and I relate to Joel more now than I do <laughs> to her. So I guess that says a lot. 
So you be, you've become, gone from being a free spirit to a bitter introvert. Yes. That's what you're yes. saying. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, the film it has sort of the two threads. We've obviously got Joel and Clementine. They're going on this subliminal sort of chase as they're trying to escape the memories of mm-hmm. Clementine as they're being slowly erased by the employees of Lacuna Incorporated, who we're constantly cutting back to. Then we've got Patrick and Stan. Um, Patrick here played by Elijah Wood at the start of his sort of like roll into sort of interesting and eccentric characters. Um, here playing the creepiest stalker, stalker sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, here, I mean, he's was there when they erased Clementine's memories and now he's using those memories of Joel. To seduce her. To seduce yeah. her. Which is insanely sick. I mean, I never liked that in the first place when I first saw that movie, and it just, it's still, it's still insanely creepy. I thought yeah. it was odd when I watched it. It was only when I recently watched it, it's like, wow, he really is creeping. I mean, he's yeah, this bragging. Is quite dangerous. <laughs> he's bragging about stealing her panties. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, oh yeah, this is no, no big thing. It's a whole other level of depravity, for sure. Um, and at the same time, we've got Stan, who's like, using, apparently he sees these like memory erasing uh, techniques so where they're basically hanging out in some person's house while they're uh, essentially asleep he uses it as an excuse to have a date with uh, Kirsten Dunst's receptionist right and, and I think it's it's nice this movie also um, goes into other people's lives yeah. as well and their relationships and their you know their compe- complexities of it mm-hmm. which I think was a very you know clever way to do it because you think it's just about Joel, but then it's not. No. I mean, the fact, the scenes where you obviously got, like, Ruffalo and uh, dance the light, you know, dance on the bed and mm-hmm. running around in their underwear and stuff, it's just got such an air of indie chic that it, it really doesn't does. exist anymore. It's sort of like, yeah. I mean, this is 2004. I mean, 2005 was really sort of like the high watermark with, like, the squid and the whale and, like, the rise of Noah Boombach. Right. Um, and we just don't get stuff like this anymore. I mean, even like Sofia Coppola, I mean, she sort of touched on it more recently with like Somewhere. But we just don't get this sort of indie hipness anymore. And it's such a shame. We just now seem to just make mainstream pictures or prestige pictures. We'd have the studios don't seem to want to take the risk and have like people do performance with such like spontaneity. You've like watching it and you think, oh, that could just be made up on the fly. But it's so hip and cool at the same time yeah i see what you mean um i mean did you have like a a favorite sort of moment or a favorite sort of like plot line within this or i mean i really did love this movie because i mean i do still but because you know it's very relatable Mm. you know to anybody right like going through the freshness of a relationship and then it falling apart either very quickly or, you know, slowly, which is yeah. even worse, I suppose. And, you know, it, it just, like, hits on a very human level. Uh, I liked... I do like when, um, you know, his memories are being erased and he's so desperately trying to uh, preserve them. And Clementine is very meta, like, you know, talking him through it. And that kind of shows her this more mature, rational side you know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's telling him how to keep his mind together, even though she was the crazy one in the beginning. <laughs> it's because, so he's going crazy now, you know, pr- 
pretty much. And she's just kind of like trying to hold his hand through it. And you, you know what I mean? And then she's yeah. like showing this more side of, you know, of who she really is, I think. Like, because she can't really ex- like express herself otherwise. Because mm. she's always like talking about 10 million things at once. <laughs> but then in this moment in time, she's the one who's kind of like slowly, you know, trying to get back to it. It's, I mean, when we first go into Joel's memories, it's a brutal sort of introduction to their relationship because we're essentially yeah. watching the relationship in reverse. So we're seeing really sort of the fallout from the relationship. I mean, he's there and he's become really embittered and accusing her of sleeping around and she's pretty much descended into alcoholism and drunk, drink driving by trashing his car. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you're seeing it and the things that she may have found like cute when he's like making the face with the, uh, the Chinese food, um, it's just become like an irritant and the fact that she wants to have children, but he doesn't feel that she'd be a suitable mother and right. sort of digs. But as we're going back, we find that that sort of crossroads really where they had a good relationship when they were, they were sort of vibing off each other. And the fact that it's at that point he realizes, you know, it wasn't always bad. There was a point when I right. did truly love this, this person. But then in like, just like in real life, you don't really remember that anymore. You only seem to kind of remember the bad times. And then only when he's trying to hold on to it and it's getting erased is when he does remember the good stuff. Because when it's bad, usually it's really bad, right? And that's all you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's if say we've all had those sort of relationships where it's just very, it's unhealthy for both people to be in it. But for some reason, you're sort of still hanging in there, whether it's... Right, because you're like, maybe it'll get better again. Yeah, this delusion is going to get better sure. or, I don't know, just laziness that you can't be bothered to move your stuff. I don't, you mm-hmm. know, whatever relationship you find, happen to be in. And it's refreshing in a way because whenever we look at relationships on film, we always see like this honeymoon period where everything's good and, you know, they have breakups, but they get back together at the end. And here we're essentially going reverse. We're seeing what happens after the credits roll, right. um, which isn't porn. It's just in Tim Blake implies in um, Friends with Benefits. <laughs> and I think this is really uh, to do with Charlie Kaufman. I think only Kaufman could come up with a script where you can focus on the break breakdown of a relationship and then somehow bring it back to a good point. And the fact that he's working with someone like Gondry, who's able to translate his ideas and the, the fact that we're going not only from Joel's memories, but the fact he then takes this this um, imaginary version of Clementine, I guess is the only way to describe her, and runs off into his, his subconscious. He goes into his own sort of childhood memories. And, right. And you see those, in, like, he go, tries to escape by going into embarrassment, and he's there, like, caught masturbating by his mother. Sure. Um, and these sorts of scenes, and I think that's where the film especially becomes really interesting when you, like, look at the scenes where he's the child and he's hiding under the table and Clementine's playing like the mother's friend and stuff. Um, that Those are the sort of scenes which keep me returned to it. It's not just, you know, oh, we're watching a relationship in reverse. We're just, we're doing interesting things with the same the story at the same time. So Yeah, when I first saw it, I thought it was incredibly creative and innovative. Yeah. And, and very different from what I've seen. So when watching it again, I was, I was also still very impressed. I think, yeah, it's for some reason it doesn't seem to lose its charm. I mean, there's certain films which 
you sort of watch it and it, it has that one time appeal like Mo, uh, Memento you can't watch Memento really mm-hmm. again and have that experience <laughs> um, I mean you can watch the Easter egg and watch it like the, the way it's supposed to be uh, shown rather than in reverse but um, I don't think unlike this film which for some reason even though you know the journey it still has that same sort of feeling that you had the first time you watched it yeah they really definitely connect with the viewers and i that's true i do still have the same feelings that i still did you know like the core of it yeah when i watch it again um and again i think this is again this is really praise for both carrie and winslet's performance here yeah um the scene where he reverts back to as a child and he's forced to kill the bird with a hammer and it just destroys me whenever you see young joel and he has those like moments of sadness. I just oh, I get very very upset about those scenes. Though I wonder, like I'm not a hundred percent sure on what those scenes mean, but I suppose it's also like a re- a little reason into why he's the way he is. You know, kind of yeah. like these repressed memories that made him to be this depressed person. You know, mm. so it was interesting. I mean, have you seen any of her Gondry's work, or is this sort of like the one film you've seen of his his back catalogue? Um, I think this might be the one film I've seen of his. The problem is he tried to replicate this when he did Science of Sleep, um, but ended up kind of l- losing his his audience that may have been drawn in by by having characters speak both English and French and sort of switch back and forth between the two so it created this sort of schizophrenic effect i'm just really sort of going out there on the on the visuals but from there he sort of played it more within the studio system with like be kind rewind and his very Mm. underrated adaptation of the green hornet oh right is that oh is that what he did yeah i mean did Hmm. you see the green Hornet? i did i did yeah Um, i don't remember it as much i've only seen it once okay i know a lot of people gave it a lot of flack because they didn't like seth rogan um, it's like a portly green hornet, but I don't know what it is. I love the human fuzzy bear that is Seth Rogen. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I could see it. I just don't remember anything about it. Is there anything else about this one that you obviously that you want to discuss, Tom? That we haven't discussed already. I don't know. What didn't we touch base on? I feel like this movie is really just emotional. Like you, you have to yeah. watch it with your heart. You know. I mean, that's really corny, but. You know what I mean? It's like something you have to really just let it go through you, feeling-wise. I think, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely one that you have to experience. Um, no doubt, I was obviously trying to explain this film. If you've not seen the film and don't have that reference point, it's kind of like trying to just like write a novelization or a Free Stooges movie. It, it just doesn't <laughs> right. work. Um, so it's probably best if you haven't seen this way to go, go watch the film and then use this as as a reference point or something, but it's interesting to obviously just on the basis that you got actors playing against type. I mean, we've got Kate Winslet, who's best known for essentially playing the English drama roles, roles right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's a, a prestige actress. I mean, she does highbrow affair and mm-hmm. here she's essentially tapping into that same sort of anarchic spirit that we saw back with heavenly creatures. Right. Uh, Would you say this is like, you know, I remember garden state, being of a similar aspect except that it's just more of like a relationship thing yeah because you know eternal sunshine is incredibly like different and i think it's actually one of a kind because every other movie is about people in relationships you know 
and then just like them coping with each other whereas an internal sunset just like falls apart but uh, but i'm saying uh garden state also had this like kind of depressed main character and then like this manic woman who like gets him out of this depression you know well with garden state obviously yeah you've got very similar characters and it's again got that feeling of being a very modern romance that you're watching um, I know people really love to bag on Garden State now. When it came out, it was like really hip and cool, and now people just like to just like crap on it. Um, Maybe people have just gotten more, you know, uh, serious over the years. I think so. <laughs> They're working way too hard. <laughs> They're way too hard to appreciate, and I don't know whether this is because Zach Braff ticked everyone off by wanting to uh, fund his second film through Kickstarter. And oh, like, you know, you're Hollywood man. You should pay to pay for your own movie, not need as as joes to like be paying for your movie and this obviously being the same people who just recently funded their ms t3k <laughs> so i mean i these are the same sort of people who are sort of criticizing him for obviously using kickstarter for for that but i can't help but i mean now you mentioned garden state i can't help but wonder if we're going to view birdman in a few years from now the same way we view garden state is this yes. sort of that fluid think, style and jazz soundtrack? Um, Birdman is sort of cliche in a few years from now. Um, you know what? I don't think so, because uh, people really love it, and I think they also see it as a very innovative movie. Mm. But it actually, now that you mentioned Birdman, it has the same hip indie thing happening to it as well. Yeah, you know, it's exciting to see a film like Birdman just because it's a throwback to this golden age of indie cinema, uh, which we seem to have lost now. I think what they're essentially classing as being indie cinema now is like films like Tangerine and, oh, it was shot on iPhone. And this is somehow oh, like classed as being an indie film in the same way that we would view these, uh, like films like Squid and the Whale, uh, Garden State. Uh, this film, it, they, they're trying to, many people like trying to compare it, compare it but, these sort of American indie films of like the early 2000 are very much different in their style and construction than what we would now class as being an indie film um, now. now. Yeah, I definitely see that. I, I mean, times have changed, I think, you know, so style definitely has changed with it. I think it is, I think this style has become like old news now. Yeah. And people want to see the edgier stuff. I mean, the younger generation has just gotten older you know what I mean? So, and then like the younger people are just, they want different things now. So, I can't help but wonder if it's because this sort of next generation of filmmakers that's come in are just now more pretentious than we were back in the early 2000s. Um, but then we also said that about them as being pretentious when we first started them, right? So I guess uh, it's like a vicious cycle. <laughs> I can't really say. I mean, obviously, we're now different times. I mean, we're now in this age where. Everyone can find their tribe now through the internet. Back in That's like true. early 2000, I mean, the internet wasn't quite the same as it, it is now. As hip, yeah. <laughs> um, now, if you like, no matter what sort of thing you're into, you can pretty much find your tribe online. It's no longer a case of having to sort of adapt or, or work within a sort of particular sort of style. And I, I mean, we no longer have this the major studios because. Again, back in early 2000, you had major studios like all having the low indie labels, and they would do like the one big picture and then fund, you know, three or four smaller, some more risky right. pictures. And they put it out like you obviously had things like um, 
uh, spotlight, uh, focus, and these are like just small little labels that they could uh, put out out mm-hmm. these films, like as I said, like this film and uh, obviously the the ones we mentioned already, and and things like Lost in Translation. Uh, again, I remember that came out. I think that was through uh, Spotlight as well, through Fox. Um, or fo- no, sorry, that was Focus. Uh, that one came through, but now these sort of like little sub studios no longer seem to exist, and it's more just a case of what's coming through like Sundance or um, those sort of indie film festivals that that sort of uh, fuels R and D sort of uh, film culture. Yeah, that's true. I, don't I haven't know. actually thought about the uh, film productions as much. I, I guess. Again, I can't tell, but I don't know. Where it's just obviously. Being within this field, you sort of focus on the more you know, yeah, the no, totally. Or I mean, so sure. Same way that if we were to talk about the indie comic market, you probably uh, right. To, that's yeah, that's right. You know, educate me more on on how that works. <laughs> I guess this is very true. So that's can, why I think comics and movies are similar in certain senses. Yeah, I mean, certainly in how you can get things out there. Um, I mean, you said already when you were talking about comics, the fact that we now have digital comics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is it easier to get material out there than before? I mean, certainly in terms of film, I mean, when you have films like Tantrum, which is shot on iPhone, um, and you, and especially with digital now being the sort of preferred uh, format over, like, shooting on film, um, certainly when I was doing film studies, we were shooting everything on film. We didn't have digital, which is obviously, when you look at filmmakers like Lena Dunham and who's shooting things like Tiny, Tiny Furniture and pretty much the whole of the Mumblecore uh, genre is just shot on digital film. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives, it's cheaper and, you know, it has that... It's definitely cheaper, yeah. It's easier to get it out there. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, having to pay, like, printing costs to get things developed and stuff. That's right. So, I mean, you know, I think it's going to... I mean, I don't think print is ever going to die, but it's definitely... It's definitely going to rely heavily on digital from now on. I mean, it's just easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are obviously going to be those purists that will only work on film, like Tarantino, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson being another. I believe mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan is still shooting on film at the moment. At the same time, you obviously have a lot of a lot of fellow innovators, people like um, Danny Boyle, I want to say, um, who did did like um, Slumdog Millionaire, and that again was shot on digital, and they just sort of appreciate the. So freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a really great documentary comparing the two styles called Side by Side. Uh, bizarrely narrated by Keanu Reeves. Um, <laughs> what his interest in, in the formats is, I have no idea, but this is who they've gone with. Um, hey, I love Keanu Reeves, so whatever he does, <laughs> I am 100% up for it. <laughs> Keanu Reeves, the the figurehead of the generation um. <laughs> But then he also did such amazing movies, I think. He's he's really, really working his revival at the moment with, like, John Wick. Um, Which I've also really loved. It, I think we were all surprised by how good John Wick was. It, it Right? You, were, you would think it was just, like, this indie thing, right? Yeah. Like a Steven Seagal-esque indie movie. It, but then you see it and you're like, well, this is actually really good. And that they were actually fighting, you know? Yeah. Like, no, nothing was, like, shaky cam and cut scenes. Like, he did all his stunts for as far as I can tell, you know. So I thought that was really good. For viewing for Eternal Sunshine, I mean, 
if you do like Eternal Sunshine, what would you sort of pair with it? I don't know, actually. It is a hard one. It's, it's, it's definitely different. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I know another movie like this. Myself, I would say if you like this, uh, maybe take a sort of wary look at Science of Sleep. Again, it's Gondry dealing with dreams. Um, and I mean, his earlier, earlier film, Human Nature, has some nice touches as well. Um, again, just work just for that use of the Kaufman script. If you're just wanting to just look at stuff within that sort of dream world and the manipulation, then um, the Satoshi Kon uh, anime Paprika would be the one Paprika, I would go with. Paprika, sure. I, you know, I was going to say, I think anime would be... It's going to be the way... The next, right, because they have definitely more freedom to do whatever they want as well. Yeah. Um, maybe Vanilla Sky? Vanilla Sky would be um, a great one, or even the Spanish um, original Open Your Eyes would again just be a, a great pairing with this and mm-hmm. and bizarrely i want to pair inception with it and i don't know whether no it's i know it's totally it. i know it totally is inception isn't it yeah this idea of just constantly going the layers of the subconscious yeah. um which again just brings me back to paprika which everyone should watch paprika is just so painfully underrated it is isn't it i think that's that's something that we need to discuss another show to sit down and discuss how one yeah paprika. i would like you know i think we should do an anime thing <laughs> we will. That's what we do. I will note it down now. Next time we get you on, we're just going to sit down. We'll just talk anime. I was actually uh, tempted to talk about Perfect Blue. Oh my god! Yeah. That's, that movie uh, really, really again, did something to me. <laughs> it's again, it's Satoshi Kon. Um, him yep. doing his version of Hitchcock. Yep. Yeah. Um, I recently introduced Bubba Wheat on his film White podcast. We did. Um, he he introduced me to The Dark Knight. You know, shame on me. <laughs> I haven't watched that, and I showed him Perfect Blue, and you forget how good Perfect Blue is. It is perfect. <laughs> it's you know what I mean. It's actually really seriously fantastic because it's not an anime anymore. When you watch it, it's like watching a drawn movie. Yeah, you know, it's just incredibly beautiful. It's again. This is uh, late '90s, I believe. It's so '99 yeah. that came out. So I watched it in VHS first. You oh, know? I watched it so... on VHS as well. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, and it's it's very you know that whole schizophrenic. You know what I mean? Like yeah. very, it's it's a very different kind of story. It's telling an adult movie. Yeah, been just using animation as its style. Stalin, and it it proved to a lot of people that anime isn't just about big. No, it's a very serious business. Yeah, getting amorous with demons, and (laughs) it's not all just Legend of the Overfiend territory. You know, we can do something sensible that isn't just gore and splatter. That's right. It does feature that. It it has some spoiler (laughs) alert. It has some blood. (laughs) It it has has many things which are certainly eye opening to the uh, uninitiated. Certainly. Yeah, no, okay, we should definitely talk about that next time. Cool. Um, but no, I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to pair with this one or any sort of final thoughts before we uh, close the book on Eternal Sunshine? No, I think that's good for now, right? Cool, yeah. Um, as I said, a truly unique film and one that certainly still holds up, in my opinion. Um, obviously, it depends on if you watched it back in 2004 and now return into it as an older viewer, I guess. Um, but certainly still a truly original piece of uh, filmmaking and one that certainly well worth uh, still checking out now. 
Um, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, though, we will be looking at our second film of this evening as we look at the final film in Park Chan Wook's Vengeance trilogy as we look at Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Why haven't you seen Jaws? I've seen Finding Nemo. That's close enough, right? Why haven't you seen The Usual Suspects? Because I already know who Kaiser Soze is. I can't believe you haven't seen Videodrome. What? Has anyone seen Videodrome? You Wait, haven't seen Psycho? Okay, okay, okay. How about I start a podcast where someone will introduce me to one of these great movies I've never seen before, and in return, I'll have them watch a superhero movie, film-wise. The Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Find it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Still joining me in the show this evening is renowned comic book artist Sue Lee. <laughs> Hello. Um, we obviously discussed in the first half Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, a truly unique movie, to say the least. And now we're going forward slightly. We're going to 2005 with Park Chan Wook's Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. As I mentioned already previously on this show, it's the third film in his Vengeance trilogy. Uh, Trilogy not comprised of reoccurring characters, but more themes, uh, similar to Takashi Miike's Shinjuku Triad Society, which again was comprised of Shinjuku Triad Society, Rainy Dog, and Lee Lines, three very individual films, but all within the work within the theme work of a Triad Society. Here, though, uh, Park Chan Wook is making violence look beautiful, um, starting with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance before moving on to the tempo and essentially one of the few foreign films that even people who don't like foreign films have seen uh, with Old Boy and then finally finishing out with Simply for Lady Vengeance perhaps putting it at a disadvantage after Old Boy with people going into it probably expecting more of the same only instead to find a much more subtle and slow paced film here we have uh, the wrongly imprisoned uh, Lee Gum Ja here played by uh, Lee Young Ae um, who is framed for the kidnap and murder of a young boy and has since spent the last 13 years plotting a revenge on the man responsible, Mr. Bake, here played by the lead actor of uh, Old Boy Choi Min Silk. Um, and now she's free. She's teams up with her former prisoners and cellmates to help carry out her plan of vengeance and basically get the much-needed revenge she's been plotting for the last 13 years. A very visually stunning film and certainly my favourite of the trilogy. Um, this, again, as I've mentioned already, is a film which combines grotesque imagery with absolute beauty. It shoots violence in the very much the same way that Guillermo del Toro shoots horror um, with like scenes such as Cronus's blood licking scene being the closest comparison I can sort of describe to 
the Vengeance trilogy to someone who's not obviously seen it. But Sue, what's your obviously feelings on uh, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance? Um, well, I love it. <laughs> uh, I think this movie for me is one of the most, oh, what do you say? It has some of the most iconic moments, cult-wise. Um, maybe that's just me in my, you know, cult circle. But I think it actually has some of the most memorable scenes ever. Just like the uh, the montage of like her life in the prison. I also don't know why it's a trilogy. I would call it more of like a triptych, if that makes any more sense. Okay. You know what I mean? Because it's, you know, it's, since it's the same vengeance uh, theme, but since none of them have anything to do with each other. With the first film, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, we've got the deaf mute uh, here at the center who. That movie I also really love as well. Yeah. I think that has some of the most. Uh, that movie actually has one of my most favorite cinematographies ever. Mm. I mean. Again, that feature most memorably the the uh, the sign language uh, sex scene. Oh uh, right! And here we have the character who bumbles a kidnap plot and becomes a victim of a sporting character's revenge. Mm-hmm. We've obviously got Old oh Boy, which is you know the path of revenge, mm-hmm. uh, only to soon find out that he himself is a victim of, of revenge and then we have sympathy for Lady Vengeance where again this is just more the straightforward we have a character who's been wronged and they're going to go out and get revenge only yeah, it's definitely find out it's not a straight path to right. It's it's definitely like you know this is the perfect example of playing the long game oh so, certainly the long game <laughs> you mentioned already the fact that we've got the scenes within the prison and she meets all these different convicts that we've got like the husband and wife bank robber team we've got the fat lesbian who barbecued and ate with a cannibal yeah and she's there doing all these good deeds i mean she's like looks after the the ex-communist spy who gives her like the manual which which she gets her gun design from and she does all these favors and gets all these like like food and shelter and but isn't that the perfect analogy of life, though, in a way? Like, you make certain friends just in case Yes. you need to call that favor in one of these days. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's a psychopath <laughs> like that, but isn't it kind of perfect? Because it embodies everything that most people are like, right? Mm. Like, you meet different kinds of friends. You make different kinds of friends in all walks of life. And then it just all comes together at the end. Yeah. I just think it's so perfectly coincidental, you know? But when we look at the favors she's doing, it's not just like, oh, she's lending someone soap or... Yeah, or like a pen. <laughs> yeah, a pen or something. She donates her kidney, you know, just on a complete whim to a complete stranger, no less. She poisons, again, our for- aforementioned uh, fat lesbian, who... She does under the guise of looking after her, but all the while she's like feeling her bleach and making her sicker. Um, and she hides it's, it all under this angelic personality, but she's got this de- de- demon-like persona that she hides underneath it. Oh, she's all business, you know? She's like, she knows exactly what to do to get what she wants. Yeah. And it works 100% of the time. She's completely calculating and pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and to you- have a female character like that is extremely rare. Because mm-hmm. it's always men who do stuff like that. You know, and usually yeah. in movies. 
Oh, it's it's definitely a, a refreshing change. And I one of my favorite scenes is when it's at the beginning. She comes out of the prison and she's greeted by the the Christian band. Right. Dressed in the sun suits and they offer her tofu, this sort of like pure substance, a, yep. like guide on this path of pure pure By the way, that is a real thing, yeah. Is that a real thing? <laughs> it is. They give you a, like um, you know, family members come in and get you like a block of tofu to represent purity. So you have to eat the entire thing to say that you're never going to do it again. <laughs> what? That's that's more of a punishment. <laughs> we love tofu. tofu. I don't know. <laughs> and it's it's like it's a, symbolic. It's, it's a proper brick of tofu. It's not like a small. It is. Brick. Yeah. But she just like, like just carelessly just like tosses it aside and it's like. There's so also good. yeah. There's also like an '80s like gangster movie that I watched when I was really really young, and they, they actually did that too. Like someone's brother came to pick him up, and he just gave him like a plastic bag with like <laughs> tofu in it, and the guy's just like grabbing it, just like shoves it in his mouth. <laughs> so it's it's a real thing. So I I think whenever I see that, it's really funny. And when she like returns to so so called normal life, she transforms herself into the angel of vengeance. So she like dresses in leather. She wears the red eye shadow, and she even tries I think to. She just goes back to being herself i think oh. that's just how she always was i don't think she was i don't think she was wearing leather and red eyeshadow i think she was like much more innocent when we see her she doing was like the reconstruction of the <laughs> and she's there in like the played dress and that's and true that. yeah i yeah. assume that was her real self and then she reinvents she herself <laughs> but sure she comes out and she tries to apologize to the family of the, the young boy who she supposedly murdered. And she mm-hmm. does this very Yakuza style thing where she's like cutting oh, her yeah. fingers off to, as a way of apology. And it's not just like the little finger that she's, did, although she cuts that off, she's quite content to like hack all her fingers off. Yeah. And it's only the fact that they call the authorities to stop her. And yeah. somehow she doesn't end up back in prison for harassing these folks by <laughs> butchering yeah, they... herself on their coffee table. They're probably like she's so crazy. I don't even. I just. I don't even want to deal with her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and we've mentioned already the fact that she's like calling in all these favors, but she has one of her former convicts marry uh, Mr. Bake. Yeah. Speaking of the long game, my God, you know, th- this is like a whole nother level. <laughs> and this is some serious planning. I mean, there's certain things which, like, such as the gun, where she she basically just has a blueprint of this gun, and it's not even, like, the most sort of effective gun that she can have. It seems to be, like, designed more for style than for, like, proper, proper sort of usage, because it has very limited range, but it has, like, the twin barrels and, and that. So, stylistically, it looks very cool, but... Um, I think it's to kind of just, like, torture him with, you know... You know, I do actually like speaking of the gun because she only uses it once. And I like how um, the next, like the last half of the movie becomes like a whole nother kind of movie. You know, so it's yeah. like this action kind of thing. And then it becomes like this horror movie kind of at the end. Oh, definitely. I mean, we've also got this wonderful contrast where we've got these like grim cityscapes where whenever anything like the color gray is being used that you know something bad's going to happen someone's doing something bad to someone else and then we contrast that with like scenes of like nature such as when she reunites with her her daughter who was taken away from her when she was went into prison and has now been given away to this uh, couple in Australia 
um, who she doesn't seem to care about taking her daughter back from, despite the fact that they, they clearly care. <laughs> I think she just ended up giving up. <laughs> um, but we have these like contrasts. I mean, again, Pacha moves here remind us of how effective blood looks on snow. Right. The pure white being stained. Very exactly. symbolic. And when we have the final the final showdown, it's in a classroom setting, which is kind of fitting since Mr. Beak is an infant infant school teacher. Right. And this again is really just a tribute to uh, Chairman Silk's performance here because when we first see him, he's there doing two little dicky birds and doing this happy little song with the kids, and then we cut to his home life and he's beating his wife and right. essentially raping her over the kitchen That's table. That's right. And, yeah. And and killing she, kids on his free time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he keeps all these little trinkets as well, which is just like it's a very serial killer thing to do, right? Yeah. Again, I just love the the scene where his his wife um, drugs him and he's like face down in the noodles and stuff and she has this like smile her face is like bruised and bleeding and she's like got this bloody smile that like slowly crosses her face and I think that's one of my favorite shots of the whole film it is it's um, very surprising when you first see it and again it's such a, a Patreon thing of where you can take disgusting imageries and make them look beautiful yeah because um, there are a number of truly ugly acts in here but again, the way he's presenting it, it's not in a crude way. It's not like like a sort of disposable yakuza filler way. It's just all about look how bloody and violent we're being. He's he seems to have a, like a purpose with how he's constructing scenes. Right, and it's not sexy either. You know what I mean? No. Like it's like he knows how to make you feel uncomfortable. Whereas in like if you saw you know another movie doing the same thing, it would probably come off as like a little sexy. But I don't want it to feel sexy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he definitely knows what he's doing. I mean, again, this has just been a real sort of standout throughout the whole trilogy. Um, here, less so, he doesn't have the same sort of standout moments. Like with Old Boy, we had like the live squid eating sequence, or the scene where he's taking on the the armed thugs with the hammer, in like. A single take we don't really have those sorts of scenes here um really because yeah. I, I thought the entire you know when the parents kill him i thought that that entire scene were those moments you see i i just saw them as being like i just took like little individual shots um ways such as at the end obviously where she finds that it's not just her who needs revenge you know she contacts the parents of all these children he's killed and, and offers them their chance at revenge. And they're all sitting out in the hallway and it's all very diplomatic. The fact that they've organized it between them, who's going to go in what order. And you've got the guy there and he's like sitting next to this other couple and he's like, oh, do you want to borrow my knife? And he's there and he's screwing the axe. Yeah. <laughs> handle it. That's my favorite. Again, that, that's, that's my favorite really scenes. good. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, Cause you know why I like the psychological aspect of it. So I'm watching this, you know, with like a certain mindset, right? Yeah. Like understanding how they're feeling. So it's very like serious and you can feel their nervousness to me. Like they're very like scared of doing it because it's, it's a scary act to kill someone. Right. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of like him, the you know director showing that like how some people can just kill without anything. And in other people, it takes a very long time to process what they're doing. So I thought that was really, it was like a really nice juxtaposition. And I love that, I loved when you go inside 
uh, what I mean when the parents go inside and start like doing their each things to them, but then you don't really see it. Yeah. It's so all you just isn't it? right. It's all suggested, but in your mind, you're like, oh, what did they do? You know. But then the scene that I think is really great that brings it together is when they clean up afterwards, and then they have the music, and it's like a very big establishing shot. And you see them working together, orchestrated as one person. And it's just like so smooth. And it's actually kind of beautiful in my mind. Because it, it's it's very serious at this point, you know. And I think it comes together extremely well. And then they take a picture together. I don't know. I just I thought it wrapped it up like in a really beautiful bow. You mentioned right, the cleanup scene. The scene when we've got the blood on plastic. Where it just pulls in the middle and they're... they're... They're sort of cutting the sheet in so it drops into the, the basket and stuff. These are really beautiful sort of scenes. And the aftermath, the, the fact that they've essentially committed these like very primal acts of revenge. And it, the fact that Chen Wu doesn't like instantly have these characters willing to commit murder and, and right. acts of violence, the fact that they have to talk it out amongst themselves, they have to like cover their angles. like how do we know that one of the groups not just going to like dob us all in mm-hmm. um, and that they come up with this plan to essentially incriminate them all right. um, and again when we have the scene where they're, they're taking the turns and you have the father like <laughs> charges in there with the axe and his daughter's like no no there's other people who have to come yeah isn't that down. A, exactly isn't that a perfect dialogue that other people have to do it too <laughs> so you have to give them something to do yeah you, you, you know you can't be the one responsible for taking away. He has to suffer. Right, Because other exactly. people are behind us. Right. So isn't it so, like, I think that is just, like, a perfect explanation in itself of this entire movie, you know? Because, like, everyone committed an act. Literally almost everyone introduced in this movie. Even the detective, you know? So it's yes. like everyone can be bad. Everyone is a bad person when they're pushed to it. Mm. But... Not everyone can do it without a conscious. I mean, saying that, though, this isn't a film showing like shades of grey, like like Rob Zombie would, for example. When you look at a film like Devil's Rejects, where there is no sort of clear cut line between good and bad, it's all just shades of grey. Here, I feel there is definitely a line between the people who perceive to be good oh, uh, right. the people yes, who perceive totally. to be as bad. Um right. I feel that in I mean, many ways... I mean, but they still did kill someone, you know? Yeah, I mean, his question is, like, how far far do you go for revenge? I mean, right, what are you right. willing to do? And what do we deem as being acceptable? Because, I mean, we've all probably had those experiences where we've seen, like, I don't know, for example, we've seen, like, uh, over here we had, like, um, the very famous ongoing case at the moment where a number of celebrities were indicted in this sort of paedophile... Oh, right. Yep, yep. Um, And the fact that, of course, everyone's reaction is, you know, I want to kill them. I want to, like, torture them. We should, like, castrate these people. And Hippodra moves, like, essentially going, it's like, you know, do we... Is it right for us to cross (laughs) this line? You know, if we're given the chance to get our revenge, do we take it? Exactly. Um, And then I like the fact that he's, like, showing that, you know... If everything has a response and action and consequence. Sure. And there's a scene after after we they obviously have the cleanup. They have 
the birthday party in the cafe. That's right. For the murdered children. And our lead character, I mean Gumja, she goes into the bathroom and she sees the young boy she was accused of murdering here and he's now fully grown. And she tries to repent, but he gags her. Now, I don't know, what did you make of that scene? I mean, the fact that she's there trying to apologize, repent for what she's she's essentially done, but the spirit form of the, the child refuses to accept the apology to allow her to repent. I mean, what did you make of that scene? I don't know. I think it was like the deed hasn't been done yet. So until you're finished, that's when you can repent. Mm. I think that's what it was about. You know what I mean? Like symbolically. Yeah. Because, I mean, shortly after that, we have a scene which I forgot even existed. And it was only when I was rewatching it. And I felt as if I'd like stumbled across a deleted scene or something. <laughs> she reunites with her daughter and her daughter presents her with a cake, which really imaginatively is just looks like the block of toffee we saw at the beginning. Oh, and yeah. She buries her face in the cake. Yeah. Um, she doesn't want to do it anymore. This no, was it. I mean, this was her last bad act. The lioness has been re- reunited with her cub, to quote Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume Two. <laughs> so she's she's just ready to enter an era of peace. That's right. Um, yeah. And there was another scene where she's where she shoots the dog. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, did how did you view that? I mean, personally, from my standpoint of view, it's just like this was like the final step to know that in her own mind she's ready to go it. forward. Right, because, you know, that's actually, like, a very, um, it's actually a real thing, I think, in war. Like, can you actually kill something that you really don't think you can? And if you can, you know, then you're ready to go to the next step. Like, there's nothing that'll hold you back morally from doing other reprehensible stuff. Yeah. You know, so killing an innocent puppy is a very real symbolic thing. I think, actually, people do that. Uh, I think they did that in World War Two. I think the Nazis did that. Okay. Don't quote me on it, me on it but <laughs> <laughs> I know that in uh, Kingsman, it's like the final test. So they, oh. They oh, give them yeah. uh, all these puppets to raise, and it's like your final oh, test God. is you have to shoot your dog. Oh right, I remember. Um. He couldn't do it. <laughs> he couldn't do it, but he has a pug. <laughs> I know it's adorable. <laughs> uh, oh. gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I don't. I think maybe we need to get on Wikipedia and look up literary <laughs> rituals or something. Know. I don't. How do you research something like that? I, I don't know. I think it's something that just comes up while reading up on something else. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a way for her to actually, you know, let her know that she's able to do something like this. Okay. Something that dismays me slightly about this film is, and that's the fact that when we look at like the cosplay elements that we've se- I've never seen someone like replicate uh, Gumjar's look. I've never seen like someone there with like the leather coat and the red eyeshadow and the bandaged uh, finger and that whenever like been at a convention and stuff. Same <laughs> way I've never seen someone replicate the bride with the chainsaw from Wreck Free. These are like the ideas I want to see. I've seen far too many like sexy Captain Americas and God knows what else, but Never oh, because it's technically an indie movie. I mean, it's not indie, but, you know, like, it's it's a cult classic because not everyone has seen it. I think <laughs> but it, it would be amazing because she's such a great character. And, uh, like, I think if more people saw it, they might be inspired to do it. Yeah. But you're right. It's like she's a very strong female character 
who's extremely clothed, you know? <laughs> I mean, this thing, if, if anyone out there has obviously, has obviously done this cosplay, I would, we would really love to see it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll buy Same you a picture. Coke or something. Yeah, right. Um, but I also did love, it's interesting, um, how she is uh, the older woman with a very young love interest. Where how it's like, you know, in almost every action movie, it's a very older man <laughs> who has a very young, pretty girlfriend. Okay. But in this one, she's, you know, she's an older woman who's pretty much just like she knows what she wants. And, you know, this little boy is pretty much like a teenager. Can you class is like him as a love interest, though? Yeah, I think so. She's a very cool woman, you know? So I don't think she's like going to say it outright but I think she's accepted him as someone in her life I, I, I mean I saw her as being like a friend and accomplice of sorts but I never saw romantic connections there so I think that's also but, but if you say it like that I think it's also very refreshing you know because it doesn't have to have like this you know beautiful romance between yeah. two people for a movie like this because it's not about romance. <laughs> it, it's worst date movie ever. It, it is. Or the best, depending on who, you know, he or she I don't is. know. I mean, I, I don't know I could take someone untested into into watch, watching, like, one of these one of these movies. I think if you're watching something like, oh, boy, it's too extreme. To that is definitely. I mean, if you took that to a first date and he or she did not know what they were watching, and yeah. then you find out it's, you know, spoiler alert, but everyone should have watched this movie by now, that their uh, father and daughter, uh, they would be very confused and probably associate you with that oh, movie forever. It's like, what the hell? And the fact, yeah. I mean, did you watch the American remake? No, I will not. Okay. It's not as bad as, as, we, as people would like to think. Josh Brolin is very good. No, I, I don't doubt he's really good. He's a good um, actor. And the guy whose name I can remember who was in District 9 and the and played Murdoch in the A-Team um, continues to prove himself the human chameleon as he's just absolutely incredible as the, the main villain of the piece. Um, and it, it changes things around um, so it's not exactly the same. But I, I like the remake. It's not as good as the original but you know, it, it's good enough as as a remake to to worth giving a curious look to. I would say yeah, that's and, and like, yeah, adaptations are fine, you know. But the thing that amused me the most about Old Boy is that when we have the scene with the squid, and we've got Western audiences going, "Oh my god, this is like really extreme!" Like the squid's like he's in the squid live, and its tentacles going over his face, and like <laughs> Eastern audiences watching, it's like, no, that's just some guy having his lunch, and the way he's eating it is just like to indicate that he's took on this like primal. Yeah. Sort of sense the fact that he spent so many years in captivity that right. he's just become very primal, um, especially because he's only had a stunted. TV for company. Right, right. Um, but yeah, like you know, so in the ending to that is, if you took that, if you took your day to a movie like that, I, I think definitely would um, be some problems. <laughs> I mean, is this you talking about spins? Have you taken like a day to no. and just like freaked them out or something? No, 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 no. No, no. I'm just saying in general, you know. Yeah. If if you're not into that kind of movie, it would be very hard to watch. 
I mean, the ending, when I first saw it, I thought, you know, it completely repulsed me. <laughs> okay. Because it's not supposed to be sexy, you know? Sort of like you, you open the box and then you're trying desperately to put the lid back on. Yeah, you're just like, like, no, it, no, no more. Yeah, it's like the ending of Ring, where you basically find yourself like trying to crawl away from the screen. You're like, no, 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 that's not right. <laughs> it's like, I think kudos to the American remake for for sticking with the, uh, the the twist. Oh, good. Oh, I thought they didn't do that. Okay. I, from what I remember, the don't quote me until I've had a chance to rewatch it, and then I will let you know again. <laughs> It is currently on Netflix. It, well, it certainly is on Netflix UK, which um, I don't know if it's on Netflix US because our catalogs differ. Whereas the US Netflix is really great. Um, ours is kind of like it, it's kind of like a mixture of mainstream fodder and bargain bin fodder. <laughs> I think we're like that too. I think if it wasn't for like the amount of originals they produce, I probably wouldn't bother. But it does have a, a number of Shaw Brothers movies on there at the moment, which is, I suppose, worth worth taking a subscription for so spend what you like um but i mean do you have a favorite of the trilogy or is this your favorite i do love this mo- this one a lot i i mean they're so different literally all three of them are all completely different from each other i think yeah um so and i and i gotta say i think i've watched all of them equally as much <laughs> as each other and i, I remember everything about each movie um i don't know i just love this one a lot because it just has a female character who basically played the last two roles you know yeah i for me this is my favorite um i love the soundtrack especially i mean you can the soundtrack you Mm -hmm. is one of those rare orchestral soundtracks um that you can actually listen to without the film and just enjoy it for what it is it's something i have on whenever i've been working if i've been doing some more like more fictional work right um, i'll just hang on the background and just use it as an inspirational piece because some great so sort of pieces such as like the opening uh theme or also yeah speaking of also opening theme um the credits is completely deceiving isn't it in what way well because it's very you know pure and you know oh, it yeah. has like a, it's very beautiful and you see someone baking or making a cake or whatever and so you wouldn't you wouldn't think the movie would be like this watching the credit scene it's very deceiving in that way yeah it gives you something very beautiful and then hits you with something very ugly yeah no it's the soundtrack i believe you can still download from the official site um so certainly if you enjoy the soundtrack you can uh pick it up Mm -hmm. pick it up there for free which is great um but i mean have you have you seen anything else of uh, Pacho Mook's back catalogue at all? Or is um, this the trilogy? I have watched a bunch of old stuff from him. Um, I'm actually looking it up now. Um, I did watch like some of the old ones. I, I watched some of his vampire movies, if you've ever seen them. I've watched uh, a, a really bizarre older movie that actually is, has... is the same style to Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. And actually the uh, daughter, the, the woman who plays the daughter in um, Old Boy played this movie, but I just I just don't remember the movie's title for the okay. life of me. It was actually all on Netflix US before yeah. they uh, took it off. Um, then the, he did the um, I'm a Cyborg movie. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, his movie made for his, for his daughter. Um, 
essentially like a girl's girl's own version of um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was cute. I, 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 I liked it. It grew on me as I kept yeah. watching it. At first I wasn't sure of it, but... Um, and then he did... What else did he do? He did recently? first after that, which was his vampire movie. Right. Um, oh, Stoker. Oh, which is oh, Stoker it's is so different, isn't it? It was nice to see him be able to translate over to a Western studio system movie. I mean, it's it's very again, it's a very independent movie in its feel, and the fact it's written by um, the lead, the lead, well, the lead uh, guys at Prison Break. Um, mm. Who I believe is playing Captain Code in The Flash, um, whose name has completely escaped me now. But but I, <laughs> I really I really liked Stoker. I think it was uh, it was very surprising the fact that he was able to still do his style of filmmaking with a Western film. Right. Um, normally, when you have like Asian directors come over, and they're very they they tend to be very sort of restrained unless it's someone who's got that sort of credibility, someone like Mikkei, um, who right. managed to uh, get... Because Takashi Mikkei obviously came over and did uh, the Master of Horror episode imprint, which then got banned. Um, and that seemed to be his last attempt to do anything over here. Um, <laughs> and then you obviously had uh, Beat Takashi, who did Brother, again, had poor right. sort of feelings towards the uh, Western studio system and went back to... Uh, making films in Japan, really, and that and doing Takashi's Castle, which a lot of people don't connect the two. Hmm. I haven't seen that one, actually. you never seen the uh, TV show Takashi's Castle? No. Okay. It's like a big cult thing over here. It's um, just a, it's this crazy, like, Japanese game show uh, where they stop, like, 100 competitors and, like, slowly eliminate them, but it's, like, so insanely hard that I've only seen one person ever win it. And they essentially got what looked to be like a gift voucher. <laughs> it was like, it's like absolutely insane. But the, congratulations! It's congratulations. You've been put through like hell because all the like games no are like really brutal. It's like um, it's kind of like that uh, other Japanese game show Endurance that used to be a big cult thing, where they're just like basically brutalizing these contestants by they have this game where they're supposed to run for these doors, but like some of them are paper and other of them are just like a plain wooden door. Oh my god. They're just watching people bounce off these, these wooden Oh boards. my gosh. Um, I'll see if I can find you some footage I'll send it across. Yeah, sure. It's probably on YouTube somewhere, right? <laughs> probably on there. Everything else is on there. So, But um, no, Park chan is definitely... He's a, definitely one of my favorite directors, for sure. Yeah. Um, he's certainly within the Korean sort of uh, key directors. He would be be the one to watch. I mean, it's very. He's really the only one that's sort of, sort of standing out. There's other, obviously other directors out there, such as like the uh, director of I Saw the Devil and The Good, the Bad, and the Weird, uh, right. and Brotherhood. But they're kind of no more for their films than than the directors themselves. It's that's true. He's kind of like the only. Uh, so he's kind of like a superstar. Yeah. Uh, Who actually produced good stuff, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, we've yet to see. I mean, he's doing the adaptation of Fingersmith at the moment. So, uh, Victorian lesbians. So, again, it's something different. I don't know whether it's going to work or not. Or yeah. Especially whenever we do that sort of prestige, that sort of period piece. I tend to avoid period pieces. I know whether it's, Really? It's been based in, in the UK. 
Like there's all, oh. so much like cobble streets and and miscovered <laughs> London you can see. I mean, it's it's old hat to us. Like I have to like look at like uh, foreign cinema. Like this is why I like watch mainly like um, American sort of cinema rather than British cinema because to watch something that's essential on my doorstep holds no interest. Whereas you watch like things like The Wire and Law and Order, Special Victims, it's it's a little more exotic and here we're sort of like more sort of uh, stuffy and whenever you watch like, it's like <laughs> I, I I don't know a better way to put it like we tried to re- adapt Law and Order for the UK market but over here the, obviously the way the legal system works it's we have things like barristers and and, and judges and powder, people wearing powdered wigs in courts and stuff and it's different than obviously the American system which is like we've got like Sleazy Very lawyers, in yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and people, even the judges are sleazy, and you know, yeah, and people like shouting and shouting each other down in court, and like <laughs> being really up in there, up in like um, yeah, definitely special. Um, you know, that's not <laughs> how we work here in the UK. We don't have like someone like Stable who's like laying the beat down on perps and stuff. <laughs> Everything is by, very by the book. It, it's very by the book, and it's sort of like it's sort of like oh, it's a fair cop guff. <laughs> <laughs> but see, it's that's why people love period pieces over here because we're like, oh, that's so strange and so beautiful. Just, do you want me to? I just I'm just gonna like be desperate. The fact the fact that I see on like American sites and stuff, and they see Downton Abbey is this hip show. Over here, it's a show mainly watched by the older generation. Really? Yeah. Often, whenever I see in the states, and I see like all the hip young bloggers is like, Downton Abbey's coming back. And it's like, ooh, I can get oh, I, I set no, out and buy no, cakes. Uh, and yeah, I've never seen it before, but people love. See, I think it's because Americans love the uh, <laughs> the dresses and the accents and the cobblestones. <laughs> the, the, I don't know. You watching it, and assuming it's Stone like walls. a documentary. You know, the, this is how we live over here. <laughs> yeah. What's so f- interesting about that, right? <laughs> you know, we all we all live in a castle and just long for a bungalow. We d- we just can't move for tripping over history over here. It's... That's true, but then at the same time, a lot of the TV shows are shown as like people living in extremely beautiful apartments. And in New York, to make that kind of money, yeah, to to live in an apartment like that is ex- like the main characters would not exist. Mm. You well, know, can, do you, imagine if Friends was shot. In short, we're a realistic edge. I mean, you watch Friends, and it's six people moving from one comfortable location to another, drinking huge cups of coffee, and bothering themselves over minor issues such as whether someone has the right shoes or not, or who they happen to be sleeping with that week. These are like what we fill the episodes up with, where if we show up with a realistic edge, you'd be like, your shitty life, and just like some guy labeling cans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, you gotta change the toilet paper, you know? Like... It's Take like out no the trash. Watch that. Yeah, not not everyone's not everyone is friends here or friends here, you know. <laughs> it, it amused me when I see like we see like directors like Noel Clark, you know, the, the bane of the Doctor Who revival, and he's over here and he's like trying to do these like these like teen crime movies, uh, such as garbage like Kidhood and Adulthood, and he's trying to like do it like a British version of like The Wire, like he's trying to sell as East Baltimore but on but in like the London sl- like high rises and stuff and it's <laughs> like, it's like they're not like that at all and you have <laughs> you kids sure? who watch this and they say oh wow that's what we gotta be like, we gotta like emulate these like gangster types and it's like 
you know, this is why I just don't bother with Brits. <laughs> I can see it. I can we, totally see that. We, we seem to be like Brits in a, in a in a hole. We seem to be in this rut where we're just either producing prestige pictures like that flaccid um, adaptation of Les Miserables, or we're doing period <laughs> pieces. Oh, what's that movie that I recently saw? Um... Oh crap! What's that movie? Uh... It's about this guy, this older um, auctioneer, and he's trying to uh, buy a piece from this woman, but she's a mystery. Oh, oh man. Now I'm... I think it recently just came out. It's, I'm going to have to look for it and send it to you. But that okay. was... Um, it's not a period piece, but it's also very, like... Yeah. We don't... I don't, I don't know that kind of life. But okay. it's also very, like, pristine, you know, and, like, very, like, cobblestones. But it's, it's I don't know, I just I, I just think the stuff like that is really interesting because we don't have that. It's it's all disgusting here, so. <laughs> I don't know. But then again, you got you got to sort of thank Hugh Grant in many ways. I mean, he's essentially what, uh, what as, as Brits, British guys are supposed to be expected to be. Yeah, I mean, this, this constant, <laughs> this constant, like, uh, flustered blundering uh, sort of charming sort of guy which is really great for someone like myself who is like can't talk to girls in any sort of like sense at all and just like feeling flustered it's like oh you're so charming it's like you Grant and it's like yeah yeah totally <laughs> not just the fact that you're having a mild panic attack or anything so yeah right um, uh, but you guys sound great doing it so <laughs> we've got that going for us yeah <laughs> <laughs> right um, I think but I think wasn't the um, UK version of The Office one of the best remakes? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the obviously I the haven't American watched version, it, but... The American version took it off. In, I mean, we only had two seasons. Like, uh, Rick Gervais uh. basically wanted it to be like Forty Towers where he ended it on a high, which I can understand doing. I mean, there's nothing worse than when something outstays its welcome. And obviously when it came over to the States and... I think once it got past those opening two seasons where they were just remaking the original episodes mm. and it found its own groove, I think it, it, it certainly became a lot better and it had that wonderful cast with like Steve Carell. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's, I think The Office, again, is just one of those, those rarities. We, we, we seem to have long left the glory sort of period of 80s uh, sort of comedy with things like Blackadder and The Young Ones and all these things that seem to be referenced as being British comedy still, even though we've sort of no longer see those sorts of things. I think the in-betweenness was probably the last sort of big British comedy that we produced. And I think that uh, that introduced the American audiences to a whole different side of British culture. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen that series at all. Uh, which one again? The in-betweenness. No, I did not. I think it's on Netflix, right? Um, I believe so. That's an eye-opening experience for you. Okay. I'll definitely check it out. Go check that. And then uh, next time you're on the show, you can... Tell us what you think of British culture then. Yeah, I definitely would. I mean, you know, I guess watching a movie or a TV show, you think you know, but it's, you know, completely not. It's the same way as everyone, you know, sees our movies, right? Yeah. I was just to get back slightly on track. I mean, yeah. do you have any sort of final <laughs> thoughts for us in Play Avengers before we wrap that one up? Uh, no, you know, actually, like, that is one of my more favorite, like, more preferred ones, I think, from the um, trilogy. Okay. For sure. And uh, anything you want to pair it with at all? Or? 
Um, all of his other ones. <laughs> so if you like this, his watch two other else. ones, yeah. I'll definitely have to watch Old Boy and Sympathy from Mr. Vengeance. I don't know. What would you say? For myself, a more modern one, maybe. I, I see. I'm just going. I'm going back really to sort of like Grindhouse uh, sort of films. I mean, if we we're talking about female, female like embodiments of vengeance, then we got to go back and we look at things like Lady Snowblood. Uh, yeah. For or sure. Azumi or. If you want to go really hip, you go and look at Pam Grier's two key films, uh, Coffee and uh, Jackie Brown. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not Jackie Brown, Foxy Brown. Although Foxy Jackie Brown Brown's begins that kind of revenge, even though it's more so it, it's, subtle. Yeah, it's a more like a female lead. You know, she's but, the badass over there. <laughs> Pam Grier is uh, a subject we could just do a whole show just talking about how <laughs> wonderful Pam Grier is. Yeah, right. Um, but no, I would, I would say it's certainly those sort of females sort of fronted revenge sort of flicks. Um, and there's even um, a Hong Kong remake of uh, Coffee uh, known as called The Sexy Killer, which was released by the Shaw Brothers. Um, the Sexy Killer. The Sexy Killer. It's, <laughs> which, it, again, it features an exploding waterbed via shotgun, uh, cool. which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a those uh, those um, Pam Grier revenge flicks, uh, Coffee and Foxy Brown are. Uh, if you've not seen them already, they're essentials on their own, even without pairing them to Lady Vengeance. But failing that, uh, certainly the rest of the the Vengeance trilogy is certainly well worth checking. And you can watch it in any order. There's no logical order to it. Um, although I would probably save Old Boys the last one because it may sort of taint your view of the other two, uh, mainly because they're more sort of slow paced, more sort mm-hmm. of restrained in a way. Uh, where old boy sort of like him giving it as full sort of both barrels really. Yeah, it's just going all out yeah. from the very beginning. Cool. Um, and that sort of brings us to the end of the show. It's certainly uh, <laughs> been a blast having you on today, Sue. Uh, Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Again. I would love that. Um, obviously, coming up, uh, what sort of projects you got coming up? And uh, if people want to obviously see more of your work, where's the best place to come and find you? Um, it would be, well, I'm on, I'm pretty active on Twitter and I usually put, um, my artwork up sometimes. I've just been really busy lately doing freelance stuff, so I don't have time for leisure art, sadly. Uh, but my Twitter is Sue D. Lee, uh, and you can go to my website, SueLeeDraws.com. Um, I don't really do Twitter, uh, Tumblr much, (laughs) (laughs) uh, yeah, just, you know, I'm pretty active on that, and I try to keep my website updated as possible. I have a few projects I'm working on, one that I can't really talk about right now, um, but it's on a new uh, digital app. It's for the iPhone, okay. and I'm going to also do... So I'm actually redrawing Hysterics, and I'm going to color it for uh, possibly digital release and then print it again. And then I'm going to start on the second issue after that, which might take me some time because I have a lot of work in between. <laughs> and I'm actually thinking of doing a um, a Korean gangster comic, but with um, a female lead. Oh, that'd be yeah. certainly good. That's what yeah. we need more female female leads, especially in like the sort of gangster roles. Yeah, I think I'm going to set it in like the late '80s to the '90s, so okay. it has that old feel. Because as you know, I don't, I've never been to Korea, so 
from the movies, it's it's a definitely different look. Yeah. To Korean gangster movies, like the colors and the clothes, and then like their language, you know, it's just something really um, exciting about it. It's like kind of ugly, you know, but it's charming. So I wanted to make something with that setting. Yeah. Um, and do you have any sort of conventions appearances coming up, or are you? Uh, um, just... I am. Yeah, uh, it's unconfirmed, but I am gonna go to. If you live in New York, or you know, venturing to New York, <laughs> I'm gonna go to Big Apple Con. That's in, I want to say, in the summertime. And I'm definitely gonna go to C2E2 and Emerald City Comic Con this year. Okay. I have a table, so if anybody and yourself is, you know, have travel plans to. America or people, Americans who are listening <laughs> and who are planning to go there definitely say hello. Again, see, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show, and I look forward to getting you back on soon. Um, yes, thank you. As always, you can find all the uh, details, links, and all that good stuff in the description section below. Um, and this, of course, brings us to another ep- end of another episode of the Mad Bad Damage Strange Showcase. Uh, if you want to obviously follow us in the meantime, you can do it on Twitter at which is at Elwood underscore Jones. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Just type in Mad Bad Damage Strange and it will come up there. And you can also keep up with my regular sort of movie rantings over on From the Depths of DVD Hell, which is from the Depths of DVD Hell.blogspot.co.uk. Um, again, Sully, thank you for coming on. This has been an absolute blast to record. And uh, this is Elwood Jones signing off another edition of the Mad Bad Damage Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. Thank you.